turn this morning to the final eight verses of Galatians. I believe it is number 18 in our study together. We'll be looking at the following eight verses, concluding eight verses on our 18th sermon. Um, Videos up uh, on our website, podcast, um, audio as well if you want to go back if you've missed one. But it's been a great journey. And we pray that the Holy Spirit has used our study of the book of Galatians together to increase your love for Christ and, and, and that the Spirit of God has driven the truths of the gospel deeper into our hearts. That's our prayer. Let's read God's holy word. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Hear the infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. Galatians 6, starting in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they, that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on I let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, verse 18, to close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers and sisters. Amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. This wonderful letter we've been studying was written by the Apostle Paul, and it's really all about the gospel. The essential truths of the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Remember, Paul wrote this letter, this this epistle, to confront a false false gospel, which really is no gospel at all. He began by making it very clear that his apostolic calling, his apostolic authority, did not come from any man. It didn't even come from any other apostle. It came through Jesus Christ and God the Father, chapter 1, verse 1. And all those who were teaching... That salvation, that justification can be obtained by some moral effort, by by some work of your own. Paul says, let them be anathema, damned. Chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Paul's talking about what what we've been saying all along, the Judaizers. These so-called Jewish Christians who had infiltrated the churches in the Galatian regions. The churches that Paul the Apostle had preached previously. And people came to faith. Churches were, 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 were born. And they went in and teaching that salvation is by works plus faith. They said that you had to be circumcised. That Christ was important, that Christ and believing in Christ was essential, but so was circumcision, the the seal and the sign of the Old Testament covenant. God marked his people in the Old Testament. This external, this physical indicator that they belonged to God, that they were separated from the world, and, and that they were looking to a future promise. In other words, it was faith in Christ and keeping the law of Moses that made you a real Christian, a full Christian. Some of you are thinking, we're talking a lot about circumcision here today. Well, that was very important to the Jewish people. It was a mark. It was a sign and seal of the covenant. But the true gospel is that we are justified. We are, we are declared just before a holy God and only can be obtained through the substitutionary atonement, debt-paying sacrifice of Jesus and his perfect life, his perfect law-keeping life imputed, counted to us. Justification, we are forgiven of our sins. And then on the other side, we've been given the righteous status necessary to be reconciled to God. And as we see here in this last few verses, when you stand for the truth of the gospel, you will be persecuted. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul defends his calling. 
defends his charge, his summons, that he was sent by God with his apostolic message. And again, I'm going to, one last time, very important verse should be underlined in your Bible, chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified, made right, forgiven, and declared just by works of the law, by deeds, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, Jewish folks, have believed in Jesus Christ himself in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And chapters 3 and 4, Paul launches into a, a brilliant demonstration and substantiates this message of the gospel as by faith alone, by pointing to Abraham, if you remember. And how Abraham was justified years before the law was given and even before the sign and seal of circumcision was given to him in chapter 17 of Genesis. For it says in Genesis 15, the same thing it says in Galatians 3, 6. Just as Abraham believed God, he trusted God, trusted his promise, a Messiah would come. It was counted to him, imputed to him as righteousness. Galatians 3, 6. And then Paul moves, and we've been in chapters 5 and 6, to the ethical outcome of the gospel. He begins chapter 5 by telling us that we've been set free from the curse of the law. We are law violators, but Christ himself became our curse bearer. He bore the curse for us. We've been set free from condemnation. We've been set free from the wrath we deserve for our sin. We are free from the works of the enemy, the corruption of this evil age. We are now free to be what? We talked about this, to be slaves of Christ. Obedience to the Lord from the heart. And Paul said that that freedom that we had, that we've been set free, uh, is demonstrated by faith working through love. Chapter 5, verse 7. We must never, he said, use our freedom, we've been set free from the law, as, as an opportunity for the flesh, for the deeds and works of the flesh. That part of me that wants to live independently of God, the part of me that wants to be in rebellion of God, the part of me that wants to go back under the law, that motivative system of moral performance as an identity, as a system of identity, an approach to life or to God. Chapter 5, verse 14, he says, listen, the law is fulfilled in one word, love. Shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says if we walk by the Spirit, if we're led by the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, if we are kept in step with the Spirit, then by the Spirit we'll produce the fruit of the Spirit. If you remember in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, interesting, Paul takes this idea of living in the gospel being filled with the Spirit, the, 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 the production of the, of the fruit by the Spirit in our life, and he moves it from the, what you do to what we do communally, corporately in chapter 6. Right? It doesn't, the gospel just doesn't affect us personally. It affects all of us as we live in community together. So he says in chapter 6, carry each other's burdens, that heavy weight, and you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Take personal responsibility in chapter, five, uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Pastor Chris, last week, as he's continuing on this communal work of the Holy Spirit, that we are to share all good things with those who teach us. We are, we are going to reap what we sow. You want to sow to the flesh this self-justifying work? You'll, in the end, reap eternal destruction. Corruption, eternal destruction. But if by the Spirit... Believers, those who are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, by the Spirit, if you sow to that Spirit, you will reap what? Eternal life. And in the end, last week, with God's people sometimes grow weary. Have you ever grown weary in doing good? You're like, why am I keep doing this? Paul says, listen, all of us grow weary. And he encourages, encourages us, chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season you will reap. Don't give up. So have an opportunity, take it. To, 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 to be good to everyone. That's our missional statement. To be good to everyone. But especially brothers and sisters. And that's how we ended last week. Don't grow weary. Do good to all people, and especially the household of faith. And as we move into this next section, we're going to see it on the four headings. The first two will be the longest, and then we'll wrap it up with the last two. There's, a, there's this boasting in yourself. It's boasting in the cross, boasting in yourself, boasting in the cross, becoming a new creation. I just want to hit that verse quickly, and then we'll end with the benediction. 
as we conclude this wonderful book, this gospel book of Galatians. So that's the four headings. So first, let's look at boasting in yourself. Look at me at verse 11 again. Paul says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. We know from this letter, the Apostle Paul is not a happy camper as he is with other books that he's written, other epistles he's written, right? But it's really never been about him. This, this, this encouragement, this rebuke that he's writing to the Galatians really has never been about Paul. And at this point, he grabs the pen from the secretary or this humanuensis, they called him in those days. Uh, leaders would have people would write their letters for them. And he takes the letter himself. He says, listen, I'll finish this letter. It's, give me the letter. Stop dictating. Let me do it myself. Most commentators say that Paul wrote with large caps. You ever get those text messages? What the? You're like, oh, you're not even there. You know they're mad. It's all large caps. He's like, I'll do this. Listen up. This is vitally and eternally important. It's all caps message. Some say, well, he wrote all caps because he had bad eyesight. Chapter 5, chapter 4, it says that I came to you, Galatia, because of bodily ailments. You treated me like Jesus Christ, and if you could, you would give me your own eye. People say, well, he had an eye issue. He couldn't see, so you're writing with large. Maybe. Some say his hands were so messed up from being beaten all the time for the gospel. But either way, no matter what the reason is, we do know this. I, I, I really believe that Paul is taking the pen from this secretary and decided to finish himself and then tell them that he's doing it as a display, a sign of his apostolic authority. It, it was an emphasis as Lifewood said, to arrest the eye and rivet the mind. It was his last plea, his last invitation to keep your eyes on Jesus. Trust in the gospel for your salvation. Live it out. Writing this with my own hands. Elsewhere, he did the same thing. 1 Corinthians 16, Colossians, Thessalonians, Philemon. I'll end it. I'll take it from the secretary and I'll end it. And this wasn't like, You know, I've got nothing to do. This is kind of a reckless written afterthought. Paul will end these verses with really a synopsis of what the book has been about. He he addresses circumcision over the cross, declaring that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that leads into boasting in the cross alone. He emphasizes the crucial message of the gospel. And he contrasts his message and the Judaizers' message. Their religious approach to the gospel and his freedom approach to the gospel and that they are contrary to one to another. Their, their religious works-based religion is articulated, I think, from the same people in Acts chapter 15. It says this, people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers this, and it's in quotes, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, You cannot be saved. You have to do certain things. Come underneath certain rules and regulations in order to be saved. This is very seriously, very serious. It's actually an eternally wrong motive and wrong message of salvation. Paul's like, give me that pen. Don't tell me that my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was not sufficient, not adequate for our justification. You've got to add works or laws or deeds of righteousness To be righteous, I'll tell you, Galatian church, what this is all about. Look at verse 12. It is those, this this works-based religion, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, to come underneath the Mosaic law, and only in order that they may not be what? Persecuted for the cross of Christ. What are they concerned for? What are these Judaizers, these moral religious-based this moral, religious, works-based religion are concerned about. Their own honor. Their own comfort. Make a good showing in the flesh outwardly. They're they're forcing, or the better word would be demanding, others to follow their works-based righteousness because they were concerned about their, 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 their appearance and they were concerned about being accepted by the world. Are you worried about your appearance to others? Of being about being accepted by others? 
These false teachers are offering a religion of external focus, of behavior, circumcision, ceremonial law, rather than the reality of the gospel, this internal work of the spirit, of the gospel that that changes motives, that changes characters. And you and I, listen, the church, I have to be careful. We have to be careful. For the temptation is real to turn the gospel into the cross plus something in order to be a real Christian. You got to read from this translation. You have to have a, a wooden pulpit. You got to have a certain band, a certain sound, a certain way of doing um, baptism. You got to be careful. You can add to the gospel some sort of sacrament or some sort of ordinance, adding to the perfect and sufficient, all sufficient work of Christ is not the gospel. For the gospel to be the true gospel, listen, the cross stands all by itself. One is either righteous by law, by circumcision, by regulations or rule, moral deeds, or by the cross. You can't have it both ways. What the false saviors were saying, what the false Judaizers were saying about false saviors and, and all religions, all false religions and <laughs> legalism, In Protestantism, what they were doing, they're worshiping approval. They're worshiping their moral action, some sort of relationship with something or an object of some sort that somehow makes me acceptable. uh, There's a sense that I matter, that there's a sense of belonging. There's a sense of, 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 of value. And because the world accepts that, the world will accept you trying to work your way into your salvation. The world will accept you running that treadmill and trying to do the right thing because of your convictions. But the Bible says if you actually do that, you lose Christ. Galatians 5, every man who accepts circumcision, then he's obligated to keep the whole law. You were severed from Christ, you would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That's a problem. Justification, salvation righteousness imputed to us by Christ alone is God-centered, God-exalting, God-glorifying. Works-based religion focuses on human obedience, is man-centered, man-exalting, and man-glorifying. Now, if you just think that through, that's why if you are declaring a false gospel of works-based religion, you're not going to be persecuted. You're not going to be persecuted, right? If you're a religious person, you're trying to do the right thing. You're, you're trying to follow this path of spirituality. You're being socially mindful of the, of the plight of others. You're, you're looking to do good as part of your own salvation. Most of the time, people leave you alone. Now, let me shake it up a little bit. <laughs> I love doing that. The gospel is offensive to those who are liberal-minded. Right? Right? Because it declares that all your good deeds that you do for others in the sight of God's righteousness, the Bible says, is our f- but filthy rags. That all the just- justice and social justice in the world and all the good you want to see happen in the world will not account to one shred of righteousness toward your salvation, your justification before God. Not a single ounce. Not that those things aren't good. Good to do. But that's their salvation. That's their justification. The things that they do, that's their religion. Don't get in their way. The gospel is offensive to the liberals because it states the only way to be saved is through the cross. But the gospel is offensive to the conservatives. The conservative mind people because when you tell them that the cross levels all people, that the cross shows the world, that the rich and the famous, the ones that have made it, that have put the principles, the conservative views, and their disciplines to work are just as sinful and corrupt and need of the cross as those who are down and out. Why is it offensive to both? Because The cross is in opposition of every and all systems of self-salvation. The world applauds religion and morality in general, what they define define it to be. Doing good, no matter what your worldview is, in general, seeing good. but, But the minute you tell the world 
The minute you tell the world that they are dead in their sins and by trusting in all that they do, all their goodness and their moral deeds will actually keep them in their deadness and result in the end of eternal separation from God, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. The motive of this false religion is self. Look at verse 13. Look at the, look at, look at the, look at the problem. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. These self-righteous people don't keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Huh. I guess the more foreskins you gather and bring back to your synagogue, the better. Reminds me of David, right? Remember that story? Look what we've done. Look at the bag we got. All the Galatians, they all got circumcised. I don't know what that looked like, but... Back in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul said, listen, those false Judaizers, those, those moral people who think they're righteous because of what they do, he says in chapter 4, verse 17, they, may muck, they make much of you, Galatia, but no good purpose. They, they want to shut you out. They want to turn, turn you away from the truth of the gospel. They want to shut you out. Why? That they may make much of them. They want to look good. What's the problem? Chapter 3, verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Those who rely on the law, their moral deeds, their moral actions, their pat on the back are under a curse. Why? Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. I don't do them. All my life, perfectly, that's, what's, that's what is needed. Perfect obedience to the law. Perfect adherence to the law at all times. Again, Galatians 3, no one is justified before God by the law. It's impossible, for the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Christ, verse 13, redeemed us from the law, having become a curse for us. Two paths, two gates, two religions, two ways. One is you've been achievement. Try to earn your way by your good deeds, your morality, your goodness, your ceremonies, your rituals, your rites, your music, whatever it is. You have to do something. The other one is the gospel of divine accomplishment. All that needs to be done has been done by God himself. It's offered to us by grace, received by faith, not works. And when you're doing your deeds, when you're working towards your salvation, when you're working in, in, in conjunction with or helping God out, You're bragging and you're boasting in the flesh, in yourself. And here's the thing. Everyone in this room boasts in something. Everyone in this room glories in something. Everyone in this room thinks you have to do certain things or have certain things, whether it's glory in your success, but we all boast in something. And it is an appeal to the world to boast in your own accomplishments and pat yourself on the back. That was the problem. That was the motive. And that's the failure of the Galatian church or the Galatian Judaizers teaching, false teaching. What do you should boast in? Look at verse 14. But, Paul says, far be it from me to boast except... In the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's talk about boasting a little more. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Remember, no, no, no chapters and verses. This is one letter. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Look at verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Remember the word conceited we talked about means vainglory, empty honor. It signifies someone has a high opinion of themselves, which is empty and vain. There's insecurity there. Someone who, who perceived there's a loss of honor and worth leading to, to need to prove themselves. They're conceited. And look what Paul says. Two things happen. We provoke one another and we envy one another. We talked about that. We said provoking is a sense of superiority. I'm better than you. Inferiority is this, I wish I had what you had. Right? And that's a heart seeking justification 
outside the gospel, right? So I'm better than you, got to prove myself, or you're much better than me, and I'm going to go away in dishonor. Both focus not on Christ, but on how others view them, how it looks and feels by what they say and do. Both want to gain an identity by either being better or being despair. Well, that's what boasting is. Boasting is what you glory in. Boasting is in what you trust, what you rejoice in, what you revel in, what you live for. That's what you boast in. John Stott writes this. The object of our boast or glory, sometimes translated glory, fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is, our boasting is, our obsession, end quote. What is it at the end of the day that makes you okay? Money? Success? You feel worthy? You feel validated? You feel successful? The thing that makes you right before God that you're working toward? Boasting was something, from what, I, from what I heard this week and read this week, boasting was something that you did when you went to war. And we see it today with com- competition sports teams. You get all pumped up. You do, you do your boasting. We could do this. Everybody put your hands in. It's a boast. We could get them. We're stronger than them. We'll annihilate them, the captain will say. Let's get them and rile everybody if there's a boasting going on. Even scripture talks about the boasting of armies, the boasting of the Lord. Boasting is, is saying we got the stuff. We can do this. We got everything we need to, to win. Everyone's boasting in something. Everyone's saying and thinking, I got this. Pointing to something in their life. Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Wisdom, might, riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What do you boast in? What what gives you the strength? What gives you the confidence? What validates you? One way to know what you boast in is when you hit a brick wall. When When you face difficulty, when you face disapproval, what do you turn to? And what our culture has done in this, in this uh, God-shaped vacuum, this hole in every human heart, one philosopher said, what our culture has done is take this empty heart. The, the part of us, the part of us that would be terrified if you really knew my thoughts, that would be terrified if you really understood my motives, If you did, you wouldn't love me. You wouldn't accept me. And they turn that into self-boasting, self-esteem, self-worth. Our culture is wrapped up in this, you can do it. We exalt and we boast popularity, intellect, appearance, income, power, prestige, performance. Look deep down inside yourself. You're a, wonderful, you're a wonderful person. It's all about self-boasting. What does Paul say he will boast in only exclusively? He said, I will boast in the cross. The cross. We look at the cross today. I have one on my neck, and many of you have them on your neck. And it's, it's beautiful. It's virtuous. It's, it's a nice adornment, a nice piece of jewelry. It represents Christ. But ancient people did not look at the cross that way. It was, it was the ugliest thing imaginable. It was ultimate humiliation. The Romans considered the cross degrading and disgusting and despicable, disgraceful. The cross. F.F. F. Bruce writes this. Paul's present boasting was, by all ordinary standards of his day, the most ignoble of all objects, a matter of unrelieved shame, not of boasting. When Paul wrote these words, you've got to understand what he meant when he talked about boasting in the cross in his day. Bruce continues, It is difficult after 16 centuries and more 
during which the cross has been a sacred symbol to realize the unspeakable horror and loathing which the very mention or thought of the cross provoked in Paul's day. Feel that. End quote. The word excruciation, excruciation has Latin roots. In the middle of that is the word crux, which is for cross. It's an instrument of physical torture, a tool of degradation. It's like wearing an electric chair around your neck. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the cross to the Gentiles is foolishness. You can understand why. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. For only a fool would believe that a crucified Jew, rejected by his leaders, his nations, crucified like a common criminal by the soldiers outside Jerusalem is the eternal creator God of the universe and savior of the world. You've got to be a fool. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. They were waiting for a Messiah to come and deliver them now from the oppression of Rome. No Messiah would be crucified. It's a contradiction in terms. It's a stumbling block. Criminals die on crosses. Men who are cursed by God die on crosses. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. But to those who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. And it is the wisdom of God. Because we see in the cross the power of God. We see in the cross the power of God displayed, the love of God, the justice of God. That he would crush his son for our sins to expel all divine wrath against all those who would ever believe throughout human history on the cross. There have been modern scholars that mock the cross. That don't boast in the cross. British philosopher Bertrand Russell says this. No one who is profoundly human can really believe God would punish sin like that. He called it the doctrine of cruelty. Steve Chalk, British Baptist pastor, said this. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse. He called it cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed, end quote. Nonsense, I tell you. The storyline of scripture, the history of redemption, is a story of God providing substitutes for his people to cover their sins. We see it all in the Old Testament. Their shame and their rebellion, bearing judgment and, and covering their sin so that they may be accepted by him. And as God's plans and purposes of his salvation, redemptive history is unfolding in the Old Testament, it points to not only a substitute, but that he himself would be that substitute in the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bearing in himself the punishment we could not bear and the shame that we could never overcome on our own. Again, John Stott in a great book called The Cross of Christ if you've never read that, I, I, I commend it to you. He writes this, The concept of substitution lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. Yet God sacrificed himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. It's the cross. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, but God accepts penalties which belong to man alone, end quote. It's a substitutionary atonement. It's not a crazy concept. It's not a horrific degradation of the character of God. The cross is where Jesus paid the debt and penalty we owe for our sin. The cross is where Jesus died to not only atone for sin, but to take our wrath, our judgment for our sins in his place. It is the story of the passionate love of God, the expression of God's love and the pinnacle of his glory, incalculable worth. Lose the cross. Lose the substitution. And we not only lose the love of God, the story of redemption, we lose the glory of God. We lose the glory of God. We have no other boast. We have no other hope but in Christ. If human achievement was the way to go, if you could earn your way, then praise yourself. But, <laughs> but if it's by divine accomplishment... And praise the name of the Lord. 
Legalism tries to earn God's favor. And even those who say, you know what, the heck with it, I'll do whatever I want, both of them fail to rest and trust in the finished work of Christ. The legalists do not believe God will love them, so they work really hard. They get the scales out and they say, you know what, God won't love me, God won't forgive me, so I've got to add all this stuff and and have all these rules and all this regulations because God won't love them. And the one who walks in license think, you know what, God is just a joy robber. He doesn't want to see me happy. I'm going to seek satisfaction and acceptance of my own. But those who boast in the cross boast in their brokenness and in humility and stop trying to be accepted by their works, yet find confidence that God looks at them and because of Christ, his, his righteousness imputed to us, his forgiveness offered to us by the cross, they are forgiven and delighted in by their creator. The cross levels us all. The cross levels us. The carpet is pulled out from us. It, 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 it inf- just blows up the spot, if I could say. We have to visit Calvary. And there it is at the foot of the cross. As we boast in the cross, at the foot of the cross, we shrink to our true size and we see the majesty and the beauty and the incalculable worth of Christ and we see that what flows from our souls and from our hearts, boasting. Boasting in the cross. Boasting in all that God has done. You'll know that you're boasting either in yourself or in God at the next part of that verse, verse 14b. He says, what, what does he say? Verse 14. Bar be it, bar, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ, of our Lord Jesus. Look what that says. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Are you living a crucified life? The world, the world is not the physical world. He's not talking about here. He's talking about the, the, the values of the world, the hopeless pleasures of the world, the present day of this world's systems that want nothing to do with God, this worldly system that, that sets their mind against God, that is seeking its own justification, its own desires. And notice what he says. Paul doesn't say that the world is crucified. He says that the world is crucified to him. The gospel destroys its power. Why? Listen, if there's nothing this world can give you, can offer you, that you can gain from, to be accepted or to have an identity, a purpose in righteousness, it has no power over you. It doesn't control you. I don't need the things of this world. It's been crucified to me in order to feel loved and validated and valued. It's the gospel. It's the cross. It's Christ. And one of the ways you can know if you're, if you're growing in selfishness or you're growing in boasting in the cross is when the world and all the things of this world become less and less appealing, less and less attractive. Another reason why I hate the prosperity gospel because the prosperity gospel is getting more and more and more and more of this world. We can't boast in ourselves and at the cross at the same time. We can't cling to the things of this world to give us our purpose and meaning and our validation and cling to the cross of Christ at the same time. But if we humble ourselves as people who deserve but escape judgment, we'll give up boasting in ourselves, we'll run to the cross for our salvation, and we'll spend the rest of our days, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians in two places, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And in Galatians. Boasting in yourself, boasting in the cross. And he has this little verse in there, verse 15. I want to just look at that for a minute because he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor circumcision, but what? A new creation. Circumcision, the, the right and the seal, the sign of the Old Testament covenant, and even believers' baptism are all things that we do outwardly, they're visible signs and ceremony, nothing wrong with that. But what matters here, he says? A new creation. The birth of the Spirit, the inward and invisible miracle performed by God. Paul will tell the Corinthian church, if anyone is in Christ, you know know the verse, if anyone is in Christ, what? He's a new creation. The old is past, behold, all things become new, 2 Corinthians 5. Anyone who's been born again, born anew, born from above, has had implanted in them God's Nature, his spirit, by immersion and baptism and planting of the Holy Spirit, the divine DNA, a new creation. 
a new life, a brand new creation. The outward signs are important, but what does he say here that counts? The transformation itself. You see, religious and moral deeds or religious and moral failures does not add anything to your salvation. It's not what you've done, it's what Christ has done. And what matters is a new creation in Christ. And what Paul is saying, let me just wrap up this verse. What what Paul is saying is the gospel, uh, the good news, we are justified, we are saved, we are made right with God by faith alone in Christ alone, through the cross alone. My acceptance and eternal love is that free gift And when we understand it, we will boast in the cross because it changes who I am. It changes my identity. It changes the very core of my being. I've become a new creation. Turn your Bibles to chapter 5, verse 6 again. Chapter 5 again. Look at verse 6. I want to see this connection. Keep your finger on chapter 6 and go back to chapter 5. Right? Chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for nothing, counts for anything. He said the same thing in chapter 6, right? Count for anything but a new creation. But look what he says here. But only faith working through love. See what he's he's doing? He's, He's bringing those verses together. A faith expressing itself through love is the reality of a new creation. It changes our hearts. It changes our motive. We, 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 we believe and we love because we have a new creation. 1 Corinthians 7, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. See how important this new creation is. It gives us a new motive. We're not bound by the law, and now we walk in the commandments of God because we've been free from the curse of the law. Timothy George. This is a really good quote. Follow me. He says this, the new creation, the new creation then involves the whole process of conversion. It's the whole process of turning to Christ. The regenerating work of the Spirit that leads to repentance and faith. The daily process of mortification and vivification, in other words, dying to the flesh, living to the Spirit. And continual growth in holiness leading to the conformity of Christ. The new creation implies a new nature, listen, with a new system of desires, affections, and habits, all brought about or wrought through the supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, end quote. When you were baptized, immersed into Christ spiritually, 1 Corinthians 12, you became a new creation. And you'll know you're a new creation when you're boasting in the cross because that's your new nature. It's Christ in you the hope of glory. And everyone who is boasting in the cross, not in themselves, everyone who is a new creation, look at the last benediction, receives this blessing. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Notice the condition. Those who walk by this rule, they will receive peace and mercy. The word rule is the word canon where we get the scripture. Canon, the rule the, the, the rod, a carpenter, a surveyor's line. It's the principle of the church. Strictly speaking, Paul is saying those who, who live by this rule of works-based salvation, who, who try to earn their way without trusting and boasting in the cross, boasting in themselves, accepted by the world, those who do that, no peace of mercy for you, but those who walk according to the Spirit, who are trusting in Christ, who are boasting in the Christ, peace to you, shalom, Wholeness, serenity of heart, mercy. God knows we're sinners. God knows we fail. But his covenantal love is, is keeps pouring out upon those who have trusted in Christ. Peace and mercy to you <laughs> upon the Israel of God. There's a, nice, there's a nice little phrase. What does that mean, upon the Israel of God? We could spend three weeks on that. I won't, I promise. But what he's saying is, both Jew and Gentile are the children of God. He's showing the continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament people and the New Testament people. God has one people in Christ, uniting them in the cross. We share in the common theme of boasting in the cross. 
and Christ alone, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. Again, the implication I'm not going to get in, get into. Walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon you, upon the Israel of God, upon the children of God. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. Talking about the Judaizers, let them stop causing me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I, I bear on my body. The word bear is used in the, in the Gospels, both, uh, both Luke and John talking about the cross. That, that's, what, that's what Paul is talking about. It's not personal disappointments. It's not a mother-in-law I got to put up with or a bad golf swing. I'm bearing my cross. That's not what it means. Paul suffered with Christ, before Christ, with the advancement of the gospel, for the good of others. And the question here, I think, that we can ask is this. Can we identify with Jesus in such a way? Are we living for the gospel and serving others in such a way that we know what it means to have it cost something? To have it cost something. Have we looked at our finances and see the marks of Jesus? I think Paul was talking about his real marks. I think he was beaten. I think he, he showed forth the beatings and stuff. And not the same marks as Jesus. He was the only one that died for our sins. But I've been beaten and look at my marks. I, I'm suffering for the cause of the gospel. Those other guys, they're not suffering at all. They're not being persecuted. But I bear the marks as an authentic apostle being beaten for my persecution. Can we at least say, does our finances look that way? Does, does our calendars, our priority, our use of times look that way? Would our neighbors and our friends say and testify that the Savior is our all in all, that we're boasting in the cross, that we're, we're, we're seeing some, at least some suffering in the sense of, of, of some sort of giving it all to Christ and, and not, you know, just living our life the way we want, would they say that about us? Paul says, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Not as look how great I am, but there's something to say about pressing on, about sacrifice. And and I say that to you and I say that to me. Am I living a sacrificial life for the cause of the gospel? Verse 18 to close. In this benediction, it started in verse 16, it closed in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers and sisters, amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus is the entry point, it's the way to continue, and it's all we will ever need for our life. It begins in chapter 1 with grace to you, it ends with chapter 6 with grace be with you. First to you as you read this letter and drink of the truth of the gospel, let it be to you. And now let it be with you as you go and you live your life in the fullness of the gospel. The grace of Christ. It's a costly, not cheap grace. It's not a bunch of abstract, abstract truth, but a divine way of life deeply fulfilling Let me leave you with two things about the grace of God. So you look at this verse and say, how does the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirit? So let me give you just two things you can jot them down and then we'll close. Number one, two things to know, two things to to know how to live in the grace of Christ. Number one, look and see, look and see what Christ has done for you. Look and see what Christ has done for you and then eat and drink of what that means to you. See what he's done, eat and drink, develop, heart, digest the truth of what it means to you. What he's done for you, by his grace to justify you and forgive you, he entered into suffering. He, he was beaten, he was hated, he was spitted, he was re- spitted on, rejected, and crucified. And ultimately he was rejected by the Father himself, the spotless Lamb of God who had no sin, who obeyed the law completely, the only one in the universe that was not guilty of sin, went to the cross and died for our wrath. He was cursed, not only physically tortured, but emotionally when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there on the cross, in that dark time, in that dark place, he was rejected so that you can be eternally received. He was made an outcast so that you can be brought in. 
Jesus went into the outer darkness as the cloud of darkness covered Calvary's hill so that you can know for sure that the eyes of the only one who really matters in the universe looks at you through Christ and says, you matter, you are forgiven, and you are mine. That's what Christ had to do. Now drink it in. Drink in what it means. Forgiveness of sins. Righteousness undeserved received by faith. Escaping the law, the curse of the law for not obeying it. The burden of keeping the law. Being free from slavery of sin. Brought into the family of God. Crying out, Abba, Father. Caused you to be born again. Dead to the world. Overcoming the enemy. This is all in Galatians. Obtain the precious promises of God. Having the ability to fulfill the law and not walk in the flesh. But most of all, most of all, drink in this. That you may now, because of the cross, because of the gift that God has given you in Christ, are resting in his eternal love. Resting in his acceptance and his bestowing upon you what your heart and my heart longs to hear. You're my treasure. I love you. I sent my son for you. And in him, you matter. You're valued. You are worth. You have worth and value. And you are justified. It's a gift. Stop trying to earn it. For the only eyes that matter looks at you in Christ and says, you are mine. Father, there's just no way this side of heaven and probably the other side that we can completely grasp that incredible truth. We are asking that you will help us to get a little more of it today. That as we see the glory of Christ as we see all that he has done, as we drink in all that means for us, we pray that our response to it all would be to boast in the Lord, to boast in the cross, to worship you in spirit and truth, to praise you for all that you have done. And Father, we're praying and singing and continuing in our response. We pray that we would respond in faith today. Maybe some for the very first time trying to run that treadmill, get off, and they're going to fall on their face, confess their sins, and acknowledge the gospel, the truth of the crucified Christ and the risen Lord. Help us today to walk by faith and to receive the gift you've given to us in the gospel. And his name is Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.